Welcome to the Fully Restored Podcast. Christians often struggle to talk about areas of deep hurt like trauma or abuse, shame or betrayal. These are deep soul wounds. Friend, Christ came to not only heal us from our sin, but from our soul wounds as well. My name is Kristen Klaus and I'm a licensed professional counselor and author. And my guest and I are here to walk with you on your healing journey. We see you and hear you. Friend, if you hang with me, apply these truths to your life, you will be on your own path to a fully restored story. Grab your coffee, tea, or favorite drink, and let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Kristen Klaus, and you're listening to the Fully Restored Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Connie Beck, who has a powerful story about overcoming family dysfunction and abuse as a child, which led to her living on the streets and how God has turned around her story to become her testimony. And she now is inspiring others through the call that God has on her life and the work and the service that she's doing for Jesus every day. Connie, welcome to the Fully Restored Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I am so excited to have you on. And I know, Connie, that this is going to be a great conversation because Connie and I had some obstacles trying to get in. We had to reschedule it because of these obstacles. And that tells me that there was some spiritual battles taking place, wasn't there, Connie? Oh, there absolutely was. So glad we're here. Yeah. So Connie, tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do in your family. So I am ordained through the Assemblies of God. I've been a, a believer now for almost 40 years. I came from a very dysfunctional family, as you said, and I am currently the pastor at a men's homeless shelter. So it's kind of a funny place for me to land. I've been in ministry for most of 37 years, and it's just kind of a, an odd place. And Jesus and I have had quite the chuckle about it. And so I'm excited about what the Lord's doing. Well, that's awesome. And your family? I have two sisters. I'm the youngest of three. And I just lost my dad in the end of October. And I have a mom and a stepmom that require quite a bit of care. And so my sisters and I have partnered together to do that. My mother's suffering with dementia. So we've got our hands full right now. And then I am married. I've been married okay. almost 17 years. And I have one son. My husband has three kids. Okay. And so one son and then um, three children from your husband. Yes. And I have my first grandbaby from my oh. son. She just turned a year old and she is just, she is a little handful. And every time I see something else that she has done, I get so excited because I think finally my son's going to understand what a challenge he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Grandchildren are a blessing. I'm telling you. Well, that is wonderful. It sounds like you are very blessed in your family, and I'm so sorry about the loss of your father. Thank you so much. It was the first, he was the first person close to me that I've lost. We've lost my husband's siblings, and that was certainly difficult, but my dad was kind of larger than life, and he and I have been very, very close all of my adult life. I didn't grow up with him, but in my mid-20s, I really purposed in my heart to get to know him. So we've had a fabulous relationship. I was with him when he died. I was able to pray over him and pray in the spirit over him and just be with him through that transition. So I'm so, so grateful for that. So Connie, can you share with us your story? Take us back to what you experienced in your childhood. Okay. 
So I was born in Albany, New York. My sisters and I both were. Both of my parents were from uh, up in that area. And my mom and my dad got divorced when I was one. My sister was two. My other sister was three. And so my mom was kind of left with us in a big city and and, uh, had her hands full. She remarried when I was three. And my dad also married one at that same time. And so my stepmom's been in my life now. I'm 58. So she's been here 55 years. And so she is my mom for all intents and purposes. But my stepfather was an evil, wicked, violent man. He started abusing us the the minute they got married. I think my mother suffered her first um, beating from him within the first few hours of being married. And so he just had no conscience whatsoever. I have referred to him many times as Satan. And he battered and tormented and beat us for 14 years. I can remember as a little girl, birthdays were horrible. Holidays were terrible. I just remember never feeling wanted and never feeling loved. I was a terribly shy, backwards, awkward child. And most of that came from the abuse. He spent all his time telling me that I was fat and ugly and that I would never amount to anything. And when you start hearing that at three, it doesn't take long before you embrace that identity. And so my shyness was an attempt to just disconnect from people because I didn't feel like I had any value. My mother did the best that she could to keep keep us together and keep life moving, but she was being so, so battered and was just trying to stay alive and keep us alive all those years. And so she wasn't necessarily emotionally present. So I don't have any memories in my childhood of being read bedtime stories. I don't remember being told about girl things and what happens to your body. I don't remember from my mother. I don't remember learning about boys or how to fix my hair or feeling loved and valued because I was their child. Thankfully, my stepmother stepped into that role and she did a lot of those those things with us, but we only spent a few summers with them growing up. So there was just all these huge voids left in my soul. And I began to develop a relationship, an unhealthy relationship with food. It was the one thing I guess I felt like I could control and he couldn't take that from me. There was some sexual abuse with my stepdad. And finally at 13, I just remember standing in the hallway of our home. We lived out in the county and I remember I was there by myself and I had a lot of older friends out in the neighborhood who had been trying to get me to get high and to start doing drugs. And I just, I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. I was, you know, we went to church when we were kids. And so at some level, I had a relationship with Christ, but I didn't really know what to do with that or what all that meant. And at 13, I remember being so angry after a beating and I was standing in in the hallway of our home. And I remember shaking my fist at heaven and saying out loud, if I'm going to have the hell beaten out of me, at least I'm going to be high when I do it. And I took my first handful of pills that night. I tried to overdose. The Lord spared me. I walked that through in the house by myself that night. But from there, it was a rapid downhill spiral. I started getting high every chance I got. And I spent the next seven years pursuing every drug, liquor, any alcohol I could get a hold of. I smoked cigarettes. I took speed in the daytime to keep going and downers at night to quiet me. I 
began struggling with depression in my early teens and spent at least two years suicidal. I would plan and plot and scheme and think of all the ways I could leave this terrible life that I have. And I would see other kids at at school and not understand why their lives looked so different. And nobody could explain that to me. I was in the fifth grade when one of my girlfriends saw the whelps on the back of my legs, legs and the terrible bruising. And she was the first person that told me it wasn't normal. And up until that point, I just had no idea. I think I was in the fifth or sixth grade then. And I just assumed every family lived like we lived. My stepdad would buy groceries for himself and not allow us to touch them. You know, we were always threatened. I remember the sound of his footsteps down the hallway as he was taking his belt off to come and just beat the fire out of us. They were long and awful and terrible years. And my oldest sister had gotten out of the home, was living with my dad and stepmom in Massachusetts at that time. And so the middle sister and I, Finally, one night after a terrible beating and my stepdad holding a loaded 357 on us, he actually put it to my forehead at one point in the beating. And I remember asking him to pull the trigger with some choice language, of course. But I remember saying to him, even hell can't be worse than this. And I just dared him to pull the trigger because I so wanted out of my life. And of course, he didn't, but several hours beating us until we were bloody and then locked us in our bedrooms. And sometime after that, my sister escaped from her her bedroom through her window, came to my bedroom window, and we concocted a plan for me to escape. And so we hid out for several weeks at a friend's house until my dad could get fly us out of the state. And so much of that stretch of my life is just a blur. But as soon as I got to Massachusetts, I just found all the wrong people to get involved with so I could continue my bad habits. It was a long, just a painful, painful road. I lived in my car at times. My mother threw me out of the house so many times in a few years span because she didn't know what else to do with me. I was stealing. I was living a terrible life of immorality in order to get drugs or to keep a roof over my head. I stayed with people that I didn't even know who they were. I remember waking up at times, not having any idea where I was or how I'd gotten there and just living my life that way. Finally, at 21, I remember waking up. I was living in a rat infested trailer with people who had started using needles. I knew I didn't want to do that. I was afraid of that. But I'd been on cocaine for several years at that point, along with everything else. I had gotten into some trouble. I was Uh, Picked up by the police for a hit and run. I hit a policeman and his family in their family car after hours, after his work hours. So I was hauled into the police station and interrogated for many hours in order for me to give up names of the people I was dealing drugs with. And I refused to do that because I, I figured that taking my chance with the police and the prison system was certainly safer than the chance I would take out outside after I had given up names. And so in the middle of all of that, I was facing between 10 and 20 years in prison. And in the middle of that, I got saved. I woke up in this rat infested trailer one day and I saw myself in the mirror and God just pierced my heart. And I realized that I was killing myself and that I needed to do something differently. And so I went home. My mom took me back in after everything I'd put my family through. 
They didn't know where I was most of those years. I hid out and I lived in uh, drug houses and, you know, kind of below the radar. I was raped those years almost a dozen times, most of the time by men I knew. And so I just had no, no good foundation and no one that I could trust. And every man had failed me and abused me and taken advantage of me. So I had all this rage in my soul, all this hatred and bitterness. And so I moved back in with my mom that first day. I knew withdrawals were coming. I was terrified by that. And so I cried out to the Lord. I didn't know what else to do. And I remember sitting in a pair of pink sweatpants with a white t-shirt on and crying out to Jesus, if you are who my mother says that you are, then, then do something get me off these drugs. I can't go through rehab. I knew I didn't have the courage for that. And he immediately delivered me in that moment from all of my addiction. And I've never gone back to that. And so I praise God for his goodness and his grace and his covering over me. And he truly set me free that moment. What an impactful, powerful, heartbreaking story of your life of I mean, I have I take notes and I just have two pages of notes here so much. So I want to go back to childhood because you we moved past the childhood. So let's go back to the childhood for a moment. When when you left, how much longer was your mom still in that relationship? Well, my sister and I left in August and my stepdad he ended up divorcing her. He had another woman, of course, and he ended up divorcing her somewhere in October or November. So that December, I came back to Kentucky from my dad's house. I came back here because I felt obligated to help her. I was um, very guilt motivated. I felt like it was my responsibility to pick up some of the pieces for her because I had seen what a, what a disaster her life was. Over the course of the years we were with my stepdad, she's had most of the bones in her body broken by him, and she never sought medical care for that. And so I wanted to come home and get a job and just try to help her make it. And did you ever report what he did to you? You know, we did. We did. The day after Betsy and I ran away, I was so filled with rage towards him, and I wanted to kill him. And I had somebody lined up to take care of that for me. We went to the city police department and we were told that because we were, he was our stepfather, that legally there was nothing we could do. So I went to the state police and I talked to them about it and got told the same thing that if he had adopted us, that I would have legal grounds. It was a very different day then. And so, and my stepfather's brother was a state policeman. And so that closed that door. So then I went to the county attorney in our small good old boys club town and he refused to help us. And I found out years later, he knew my stepdad and knew his family quite well. And so he didn't get involved. So there were people that knew, but nobody got involved. So we went to the hospital the night we ran away and they documented both of us were bleeding. I had a broken wrist. My sister's back was gashed open from his belt buckle. We were black and blue, both of us on our left side, predominantly black and blue. Our faces were black and blue. We had these huge whelps all over our body. We had pictures taken of everything. We had nurses that came in as witnesses. We documented everything because I was going to go after him legally. 
and told them everything that had happened. A short period of time later, when I went to get those records, they had no record of us ever being there. Mm. So I don't know what happened to that. I guess he knew enough people and had enough influence that that all got, it just vanished. And it's different now. I mean, that was bad. So different. Yeah. I, I know for my own story, because I was 14 years old when we reported when I was raped and held against my will. And we reported that. And at that time, now every state's a little bit different. That was in California. There was what they considered real rape or statutory rape. So real rape was somebody you'd never met before, even though the person that did it to me, I only knew very briefly that night had met them. So that was considered statutory rape. It wasn't considered a real rape. And so I know things are very, very different now than how they were back then. And the cover-up, the cover-up that takes place. And I pray that that doesn't still happen because the truth is, is you were, how old at the time? You were 13 or? Um, I was three when the abuse started. When you guys left. I was 17. You were 17. And there was plenty of pictures and plenty of evidence. Yes. And for them to see you in the condition you were in and to still say that they wouldn't do anything. Yeah. That is heartbreaking, but that is the truth of what so many of us that are our age and older have experienced is where there wasn't help. I'm very thankful that the system is different now. Yes. There's a lot of advocates and different advocacy groups and, and laws and different things that are out there to protect children. Right. Now, and not to just cover it up, but that led to, you know, as you're talking about your story of at home, you started, you were so angry and rightly so, and you started taking drugs and pills and different things, and you're struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. And that was all, you're just trying to cope. You were broken, you were abused, and you were just trying to figure out to cope. And if I can get high, I can just cover up the pain for a moment. Yeah, disconnect. Mm -hmm. Now the pain is still there when you when you sober up. That's why you get high again. And then sadly, what happens is we become addicted to drugs. And so, you know, the, it was a real hard journey and going to your dad's and it's not, I think a lot of people don't understand. It's really one of the reasons I became a counselor, Connie, is because I knew why I did the things that I did. I knew the reason was because I was a hurting young lady. You know, I was broken. And that we often judge people on what they're doing, on their choices that they're making. And we don't know the story behind it. And there was a big story behind why you were doing the things that you were doing. Yes. It was just too much. You, you know, you didn't know how to, you were just trying to cope. And then that became a habit of this is how we cope is we run away emotionally, mentally, everything. We just run away. We steal. We do immoral things. We just get high because you're just trying to keep your head above the waves that are crashing around you. Yes. But then at 21, you had an encounter with God. Did. You know, I just... I don't fully remember because I was still, my brain was a little foggy, but within a few days on a Wednesday night, I went to my church. I went to the altar on a Wednesday night and my youth pastor, who I still see now and then, and he loves to tell the story every chance he gets. 
he'll tell me how I came to the altar completely broken. And I don't remember praying the sinner's prayer, but I remember getting up different. And I remember, so that was the middle of February, 1985, and it was so much to take in. So I had been going to the doctor at that point for several months, and I was being told that I likely had cervical cancer, which was fine with me because I never wanted children. I wasn't going to bring a child in because I knew I'd be a monster, same as my stepdad, because it's what I knew. And I didn't like people that had children. I, didn't, I wasn't friends with people that had kids. I just wanted no part. So a, a complete hysterectomy was absolutely okay with me. And on my last visit in for them to schedule the surgery, a different doctor came in and I'll never forget. She put her hands on my belly and she said, oh girl, you don't have cancer in here. You got a baby that's about five months old. And I just wanted to die. I just knew I wasn't qualified and that it was going to be a disaster. But I had come to the Lord a month before that. So I got saved the middle of February. I found out March 5th, I was five months pregnant. I turned 21 in April. So then that Easter, that April, um, that year, I remember between salvation and Easter just being in a fog, but that Easter Sunday, so Jesus had become my savior in February, but that Easter Sunday in that, that year, yeah. that April, he became my Lord. He yeah. became my master. He became everything. I just remember standing beside my oldest sister in worship, feeling so overwhelmed by his love and his acceptance. And it's the first time I ever experienced that. And I just remember weeping through the whole service, recognizing what Christ did for me, that he shed his blood, that he died on the cross, that he rose again for me. You know, when nobody else had spoken value over my life and I had no dignity left, Jesus came in and declared that, declared that I'm worth it, that I'm valuable, that I'm his. And it was such an impact. I still, I'm so grateful 37 years later, I'm as grateful today for my salvation as I ever was back then. And that is your fully restored moment. So that was when you found out you were pregnant and he had become your savior. Then he became your Lord. And that was really when your life began to transition, right? It did. It did. So I got involved with my church immediately because I just, I don't know, something was different. I felt like I was different than what I was seeing around me. I saw people that loved Jesus. And I'm so grateful that many people in my church came alongside me, that they saw something in me that was worth going after. And so I had loads of people that spoke into my life. I attended Bible classes. I just got involved. I cleaned bathrooms at the church. I sat in the nursery. I just wanted to be there around these people who figured out how to walk out this relationship. And so I was there every chance I got, and I was being really well discipled. But I started speaking in my youth group and counseling, or not counseling, but serving as a chaperone at camps and all of those kind of things. And the Lord just began building this ministry in me. And I recognized early on, and I think this is so key, and this is still something I speak about, I preach about, I teach. I recognized early that this had nothing to do with me that it was all about Jesus and that the focus would have to remain on him for anything in my life to go well. And so I fully surrendered my mouth and my personality 
and every part of me. And I started recognizing these giftings. I started recognizing after being so shy all my life, I started recognizing this love for public speaking because I got to talk about Jesus. And I started learning how to love people and embrace them and, and, and embrace who I was, but understanding right from the beginning who I am in Christ. And I say all the time, if we as believers could ever fully get a hold of who we are in Christ and what authority that gives us, what that entitles us to, what that allows us to be a part of in the kingdom of God, when we get a hold of that, it changes everything. Somehow I got a hold of that right after I was saved and that changed everything. That was my platform from which to minister. And the Lord has just continued to build that confidence in me and to to really help me understand my partnership with him. He's my Lord and my master, but I'm in partnership with him to build the kingdom of God here on earth. And if we could settle that as believers and recognize it's not about us, it's not about our giftings, it's not about our abilities, it's about being available and just saying, yes, every day I choose to say yes to Jesus, whatever that means. And so I started in ministry. I loved it. I just was having so much fun traveling and speaking and doing my thing. And then six years into my walk with Jesus, I knew that I was called to something greater. I didn't know what that meant. But in my ignorance, I remember telling the Lord, gee, I'd really love to travel maybe to some sunny places. You know, like I'd really like to be on the beach. I'd like to experience different cultures and foods. I'd like to meet people around the world. I'd really like to do things for you and I don't know what that would look like, Jesus, but is there anything like that? Do you have anything like that going on? Never cross my mind, missions. Never cross my mind. If we had a missionary speaking at church, I generally skip because I just thought, you know, those are middle-aged women that can't get married and they're just out doing their thing with, you know, their hair in a bun and a long skirt, no offense. But I just didn't see myself fitting into that. And sure enough, that was exactly what the Lord called me to. So I was called at that time to become a full-time missionary. I left the United States at 26 with my six-year-old son in tow and moved to the West Indies and started doing training schools with Youth with a Mission, also known as YWAM. And I spent 11 years as a full-time missionary with my son as a single mama, trusting God for shoes on our feet and food on our table. And it was a wild ride, but I've preached the gospel in many different nations, seen thousands of people saved over the years and have just had some of the most incredible experiences with the Lord, you know, as we chased him all over the earth. So it's been so much fun serving the Lord. And now you're currently serving as a pastor to your local men's homeless shelter, the Harbor House Christian Ministry. How did you get involved in that? So you were in missions, you were involved in YWAM, and now you're here involved in ministry in your community. Yes. So when I came off the mission field in 2002, of course, I plugged right back into my church. I served on the pastoral staff for a while. I've just done all kinds of things and have done lots of women's ministry, jail and prison ministry. So I was keeping myself busy. Any door the Lord opened, I just plowed through loud and clear. Several years ago, let me back up and say several years ago, my husband and I got involved with Teen Challenge. We mentor out there. We've I preach out there. We've been um, 
hugely connected to them, love that ministry. I have a real heart for addiction recovery and to see people healed. And my heart is for discipleship. And so that was a great avenue for us. And then last year, last summer, my husband and I hit a wall and we had too much going on and underestimated the strategies of the enemy and our marriage imploded. And the week that my husband moved out, I was invited to come for an interview for this to be a part of the leadership team at this men's homeless shelter. And I just thought, this is really bad timing, God. I just don't think this is you. But I went anyway in obedience to God. And I went through the interview. (laughs) They asked me questions and all this vision started pouring out of my heart. And I got to my car when it was over and I thought, Jesus, they loved me in there. Now what am I going to do? what in the world are you thinking? And so sure enough, they brought me on board. And so a few months after that, I was invited to step in as the pastor. And I cannot even tell you how excited I am and what God is doing. And so, yeah, I'm in there every day and I've got a great leadership team. We have a house manager, Steve Reed, and a day manager, Jared. And we've just got this great team with the board members and We're kind of revamping the shelter because it hasn't had a great reputation for the last few years. There was a lot kind of falling through the cracks and just some sort of interim leadership in place. And so we've come in and birthed all this vision and reestablishing it as a faith-based, Christ-centered ministry where if you come in for services, you're going to find Jesus. We're going to make sure that you have an opportunity to encounter him as Savior and Lord and understand that he's the only one that makes life possible. And so my husband and I were separated for eight months, and then the Lord just began to do a powerful, powerful work in both of us. And, you know, I I struggled with more grief in that season than I have ever experienced, even in spite of everything I've been through. And I just I didn't get married till I was 41. The Lord miraculously brought this wonderful man into my life. And I just didn't understand what happened. And as he and I were apart for those months, we both did a lot of soul searching, but it all came together for me last week when I was standing at the altar serving on the prayer team. And there was a lady that came up at the end of the service to me with tears running down her face. And she said, I don't know who else to talk to. She said, my marriage is imploding. We're in a tailspin that I don't know how to stop. And she began to share with me that her husband had been addicted for years to pornography. She had just found out about it a year ago. They had a child, a daughter in the home who had found out about him having multiple affairs. She had found out two and a half years earlier and had kept it from her mother. And so here stood this dear friend of mine tears running down her face. And she said, I can't talk to my best friend. I don't want to talk to the leadership here. I'm not ready to unpack all of this publicly, but I knew you'd understand. And it all just, even though we didn't experience immorality or infidelity, we didn't have any of those issues. I understood her grief. And it took me back to 27 years ago when I got saved, saying to the Lord, Jesus, whatever you can do in my life to make me the most well-rounded minister that I can be, I just say yes to you. And that invited a lot of heartbreak over the years, cancer scares, near-death accidents, all kinds of things. But in every one of those things, when I get to the other side, 
I can look back and see the grace and the goodness of my God. And I can sit across the table or stand at the altar holding hands with anybody who says, you don't understand. And I can say, oh, but I do. And let me tell you what my Jesus has done for me. And so I'm able to just use these experiences. And my husband and I are in we're having the best time of our lives. Our marriage is strong. God has been so gracious. We've walked through repentance and forgiveness at a whole nother level of our lives. And so we're in partnership in this ministry and he's brought all of his giftings and strength into the shelter. And so God is just birthing so many incredible things. So with all this, all this fire and vision and direction and things that God has been doing in and through you guys. What is your vision for the future? I'm glad you asked that. So when I sat in the interview with the board of directors last year, one of the things I I threw out and I don't, I wasn't planning to say it. It just erupted from my spirit. I said, has anybody thought about expanding this ministry? Like we we're a small facility. We're a 20 bed facility. And I said, I have this vision of doubling our size, building another building like the first one on the other side of the lot with a grassy courtyard in the middle where we can invite the community in and we can have cookouts and we can play games and we can have fellowship and really reach into that part of our community. And I spewed all that out and the president of the board said, me, me, I thought about expanding, but no, I didn't think anybody else thought about it. And so I had this beautiful picture in my head, complete with the courtyard and the barbecue grills. And a couple of months ago, my husband and I went to a funeral and one of the original board members, who's been a longtime friend of mine, came up and she said, hey, I've got some things I thought you might want to see from the Harper House. Is some of the original newspaper articles from when they started in 1989. And she said, and funny, I have this picture. She said, we had this vision of expanding when we first started. And we never really got to that point. But I, want, I wanted you to see it. And she handed it to me. And it was exactly the vision the Lord spoke to me. And I just did a happy dance all over myself because that to me was God's seal of approval. It was Jesus saying to me, hey, this wasn't your idea. This is my idea. You just get to be a part of it. And so we've just started the grant writing process. We're raising funds. I'm believing God for a million dollars to be able to double the size of our facility and furnish it and also to provide salaries for the guys that are serving full time in there with not much money. And so we are in that process thick and thin. We just got brand new beds donated to the, to the center and we are discipling guys and we're having Bible studies and we're praying with them and we're helping them get on their feet to establish themselves. We don't want that to be the end all, but we see ourselves. It's not just a stopgap measure. We see ourselves as a place of transformation where men with addiction or mental health issues or homelessness, where they come in, we're discipling them very intentionally. And we want to get them the help that they need, get them the services that they need, and get them to a place, if they're able, to be able to move out on their own and live a successful life. We're giving them training in how to manage their finances. We're teaching them to have Bible studies, how to have quiet times, who God really is and how we trust him. And so we're seeing guys get to that place. We're moving one out next week. That is amazing. It's so exciting. 
is so exciting to be a part of. Yeah. And so, Connie, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're talking about this of where your life has has been, you know, the different stages and where you're at now. And that makes me think as we're winding down this interview today with your life experience and where God has brought you today, briefly, if you could just share with us two or three things that will help our listener as they begin or in the middle of their journey of healing. The first thing is to come to Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, you need to. I've been on both sides of the fence and I can tell you, the Bible says apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And I believe that fully. And even in hard times, Jesus is the answer. And so he makes a way for us, as the Bible says, he makes a way where there is no way. And so first, come to Jesus as your Savior. Find out who he is as the lover of your soul and let him rebuild your life and bring healing in the places that you might be thinking right now you'll never be free of. I'm a living example, a shining testimony, if you will, of the healing power of my God. I don't struggle with those insecurities, with that brokenness. I no longer have nightmares. I'm not afraid of men. I have a healthy relationship with my husband and I'm set free from all of that bondage, from the anger and the bitterness and the betrayal and the abandonment. He has freed me and I get to walk that out every day. So that's the first thing. The next thing is to seek the Lord and find out what it is you're called to. Find out what Jesus, because we're all called. He's called all of us. If he saved us, He's called us. And so he has a plan and a purpose for everybody's life. And find out what that is and then throw yourself into that. I often say to myself, if I could do anything for Jesus, what would it be? And in whatever season I'm in, I've decided to throw myself wholeheartedly into that and to every day say yes to him. It's about our availability and our willingness. And he's so ready to use us. And so invite him into your pain, invite him in as your healer and allow him to take those things. There's no burden that you can have that he cannot take and set you free from the pain of that. And so I just, I'm just so grateful for that. And then be faithful, be faithful in what he shows you to do. Get counseling if you need it. I've had counseling many, many, many times over the years and I'm not opposed to that. Go to your doctor, find out what things you can do to make your life better. If you need therapy, if you need medications, embrace that and allow the Lord to partner with you in that. And then just chase hard after him. Nobody will ever love us the way Jesus loves us. Amen. Amen, Connie. And so how can people connect with you? I am on Facebook. It's Connie Beck, B-E-C-K. You can find me there. You'll see my, well, they can't see me now, but you'll see my picture on Facebook and you can friend me there. If you reach out to me there um, or through messenger or however, then if you need to make contact with me, I'll give you my phone number. Harbor House also has a Facebook page and we have a phone number in, in, you know, on that page and you can reach out to us there as well. And I'm telling you, we're available If there's anybody that wants to partner with the Harbor House, we welcome that. We welcome your prayer. We're under a lot of spiritual attack. And so we invite the body of Christ to be a part of what God's doing. Well, thank you, Connie, for joining us today. I have truly enjoyed talking with you, your heart and passion, where God has brought you from 
that he literally pulled you out of the depths of hell and restored, renewed, and transformed you. And now you are running with the call. You've got the baton in your hand and you're doing well. Friends, our show notes and all the links shared with us today can be found at my website, fullyrestore.love. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our shows. I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating or a comment on whatever platform you're listening to us on because friends, people look for those comments and ratings on whether they're going to listen to a show. I would love to stay connected with you. So be sure to find me on Instagram and my Facebook page. Both of those are at author Kristen Klaus. I pray that this episode of the Fully Restored podcast really ministered to you, that it encouraged you, that it gave you hope, that no matter what you are facing or have faced, that God is here to heal you, to restore you, to transform your life, and that nothing or no one is beyond restoration with our Jesus.